Who are those guys? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. On the phone from Chicago, she is. I'm here at home in Florida. Glad to be talking to our friends in Seattle and throughout Puget Sound. And we have a wonderful in-studio guest today. We'll get to that gentleman in a moment. But first, let's say hello to bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Good to be Good. To, well, I got a little bit of that. I think we're still here. I think we need to pull the string a little tighter on those uh, cups there, Gary. I hope I didn't lose them completely. Uh, Gary, are you still there? Hey, we lost Gary already. Suzanne, where are you? Are you please tell me you're still there. Hey, we lost Gary already. We did. <laughs> In did, the opening, we lost Gary. What did you say never to do, Gary? <laughs> don't, don't jiggle the don't, liar. Don't jiggle the liar. <laughs> I really well, don't have him, so we'll have to figure he, out. <laughs> he, I'm sure he's going to call on the phone. Oh, this and is great. so in the meantime, let me just say that he and I are both kind of remote today. He's in charge of the equipment, which is not usually what he's in charge right. of. And I'm in Chicago. Last week, I celebrated a high school class reunion, and it was a lot of fun in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then I decided to stay a little longer because I have family here. All right, well, gonna, hang on one second. I'm going to pause on for a minute because I think our other host is joining us now. So let's go and bring in. Gary, are you back? What did I tell you? <laughs> we were just talking about <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> yep. So well, uh, here I am on the phone. We've got somebody on the phone from Sarasota, mm-hmm. somebody on the phone from Chicago, and Neil McNeil, whose bio I'm going to read in a moment, Thank you so much for coming in studio. I just knew with my spidey sense that this could happen. And before we uh, let you continue on there, Gary, Suzanne was going to finish up on her little story, which we had to interrupt because we had to bring you back on the other line. So Go for it. And my story, and my story was just that Gary and I have been <laughs> separated for this last week since I am uh, staying in the Chicago area, visiting with my brother and uh, family. And Gary went back to Florida to handle business, and so he's working, and I'm playing. And and I thought I was getting the better end of the deal until I woke up at 37 degrees this morning and wished I was back in Florida. You missed your cuddle, buddy, I think. That's my whole Uh story. Of course I miss my cuddle, buddy. We did have a great time, and I want to move on into our main topic and bring Neil on. Absolutely. We went to Suzanne Mitchell's 50th, 50th high school reunion, and I met some wonderfully warm and intelligent and engaging people, in many cases people that Suzanne herself had not seen in five decades. It was special. Cool. We heard funny stories. And and met a lot of people that I didn't even know it well in high school, and it was it was fun to make new friends over the weekend. And speaking of friends, we have a friend in studio today, Gary. Oh man, it's always great to visit with Neil. We have only met him face to face on one occasion, I believe, when he came in to do a show with us a couple of years ago. It was great, and we thought we have to get him back. I can't wait to uh, go to 
Starbucks or break bread with him again sometime soon. We need to get back to Seattle and, and do the show in studio, and we always have the opportunity to get out and meet the peeps, and I look forward to that. Let me go ahead and give Neil his mad props here, and then we'll get into some paranormal and parapsychological discussion for the rest of the hour. Neil McNeil began his serious study of paranormal phenomena through an association with noted California parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach in 1993. After seven years of independent research, Neil began a two-year stint as lead investigator for the Washington State Ghost Society. Since 2004, Neil has served as an investigative consultant to the Evergreen Paranormal Group, as well as a parapsychology consultant for TV and film. Neil is a member of the International Parapsychological Association, the Rhine Research Institute, and the Seattle Consciousness Education and Research Society. Neil McNeil is also pursuing advanced studies in parapsychology with the Australian Institute of Parapsychological Research. And so, I'm not sure how many times he's been with us. It's never enough, but we're happy to have him in studio today, Neil McNeil. So glad to talk to you again, Neil. I'm so happy to be back. How are you doing? Well, as we earlier stated, we've been gallivanting and traveling and going around and keeping ourselves busy, but we get on the radio here on a weekly basis, and we love to talk about these sorts of subjects, everything from pop culture to the paranormal, but we have a special place in our hearts for paranormal research because it takes brave souls like you, Neil, to go out there to do the investigative work and then put it out there for the public knowing that some are going to love it, some are going to be cynical and criticize it, and then you have your healthy-minded skeptics who demand more evidence. You're willing to take on that challenge, and we admire you for it. Well, thank you very much. That's just part of the job. I can be really nonchalant and just say that this is all just part of the job. Actually, I love it. So, you know, <laughs> I'm happy to talk to anybody about any aspect of the paranormal that I can. So, Neil, well, can with regard that- to the aspects of the paranormal, when you're going out to do research, what is the part that intrigues you the most? Really good question. Actually, the one thing that's, that's interested me the most through all the 25-plus the years that I've been doing this is, is going out and doing the field research. There's a number of different aspects to parapsychology, a lot of which happen in the laboratory, uh, a lot of statistical analysis and things like that. I was never good at math, so getting out into the field and actually conducting the interviews with people who have had these experiences and want to tell me their stories and and actually out there looking for the phenomena that's the thing that really interests me the most i i am a big fan of hearing people's ghost stories everybody has one just about everybody uh, everybody has one that they want to share and so that's kind of that's that's my big interest that's sort of why i got into the into the field to begin with and i'm really happy that i still continue to be able to do that today it's also why people get into talk radio, Neil. It's about the stories, That's about right. the grand narrative and all the details that you build into it. And here you are doing it as a paranormal and parapsychological researcher. That leads me to ask you a specific question, Neil. It relates to something that was said to me. I laugh about it now, though it wasn't so funny at the time. But the late, great, the recently departed, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, asked me to write some ad copy and read it for a live read, as we call it. It was a little over a year ago for a Seattle event. And so I did that. And I referred to her as a parapsychologist. 
Well, she shot back an email telling me in no uncertain terms that she is absolutely not a parapsychologist. That is not who she is and what she does. She was an author. She was a spiritual researcher. She was quite psychic in her own right. But as a parapsychologist, she just didn't relate to that label at all. So this allows me to ask you, Neil, because you do embrace it. When we talk about parapsychology and what it takes to be a functioning professional parapsychologist, how would you itemize those characteristics that would qualify somebody as a parapsychologist versus being a ghost hunter or somebody who's interested in the paranormal or a psychic that works various fairs and whatnot? I mean, that sounds very scientific. Well, actually, it is very scientific. Most people aren't aware of the fact that there is a legitimate science that's been around for over 150 years, if not longer, that has really delved into the specifics of these kinds of phenomena, what most people consider paranormal phenomena or psychic phenomena. Um, what it takes to, to, to be in the field, it takes a keen uh, amount of interest. It takes a very discerning mind, uh, critical thinking skills, uh, and a thick skin, I think, is also part of it, because we're going to take a lot of criticism. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I'm going to echo the words that she told you. I myself am not a parapsychologist. I do not make that claim, uh, simply because of the fact that you haven't been able to get a degree in parapsychology here in the U.S. since the very early 1990s, around about the time when I was actually getting into the field. Uh, you actually have to go outside of the U.S. these days in order to get any kind of university or, or higher uh, institute uh, training in parapsychology as a laboratory science. Uh, so when I meet somebody that, that says they're interested in parapsychology or that they are in the field of parapsychology, number one, I'm always looking for their credential. Um, and in my case as a credential, I know a lot of parapsychologists. I work with a lot of parapsychologists. I read a lot of the... the uh, uh, works from parapsychology and the technical papers and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of a self-scholar in parapsychology, which is why I call myself a consultant rather than an actual parapsychologist. But that uh, it's a very, very important field. It's a multidisciplinary field, which means that it draws from a number of different other sciences. So we, in the field, we've actually got parapsychologists who come from backgrounds in physics, backgrounds in psychology, in medicine, in biology, um, and, of course, now consciousness research, which is the, the big thing. Parapsychology seems like it's transitioning into consciousness research. So it's a huge field, and there's enough room for everybody who wants to, uh, to get in on the act, basically. Neil, I have a question for you. When you go out onto a, a site, do you travel light or do you travel with a lot of stuff? Because we have talked to people who have... Uh, uh, electronic voice phenomenon, EVP machines, tape recorders, video cameras, a medium. It seems like you can go out with a whole troop of people who are all specializing in either sound or video or uh, uh, psychic awareness, or you can kind of travel lightly. So when you go out to do your research, do you have a big entourage with you? Uh, these days, I don't, but I'll say that when I started out, I sure did. I, uh, I was part of a couple of different groups. We tried to keep the uh, investigative group size down to maybe five or six people at the most, and we used to bring along all of the equipment, the audio recorders and the, uh, the cameras and the uh, electronic field 
uh, electromagnetic field meters and, and the whole nine yards, and we would use all of those things. And over time, I realized that, you know, there's such a thing as the observer effect. That is, what you observe, you actually change. You change the conditions of the, of the experiment itself. So if you're going into a physical setting, a haunted building, a haunted location, you want to be as unobtrusive as possible, in my opinion, because that's the, that's the only way that you're actually going to accurately um, observe or experience the phenomenon. If you bring in eight or nine people and a whole bunch of equipment, if I was a ghost in that building, I'd probably pack up and leave for the weekend and then, you know, come back when everybody's, when everybody's gone. Um, so to, to my way of thinking at this point, I travel pretty lightly. I bring a notebook with me. I might bring uh, an, another pair of eyes uh, with me just to make sure that, that uh, I'm not doing anything that I shouldn't be doing uh, and, uh, and keep it very, very, very simple at this point. Any equipment? Yeah, you know, I will bring a camera. I do bring an audio recorder, and I will bring a, a sophisticated form of electromagnetic field meter that reads uh, uh, geomagnetic fields, basically. That's, that's what I'm interested in finding, because I know, uh, just as a trivia uh, point, that if, uh, if you've got electromagnetic uh, uh, signatures, of the geomagnetic signatures in a location that are changing constantly or moving around, that's actually not normal. So that's a pretty good indicator that something unusual is going on. Uh, it's, what uh, shows up first for you, Neil? Does it show up first electromagnetically? Do you hear something? Do you see something? When you're encountering a ghost, what part of that shows up in the equipment first? You'd think that it would be consistent from investigation to investigation, but I guess just like people, ghosts are different uh, themselves. So there's, there's any number of ways that it could actually appear, at least with regard to the equipment for myself, in investigation, I find that audio um, is actually where most things show up, either at the time that the recording is being made, that is during the actual investigation, or when I'm uh, back safe at home and uh, and safe in my bed and I've got my headphones on and I'm listening to, uh, to all the audio that we recorded and something actually comes up, a sound or a voice that comes up. Um, but again, you know, it's different in every single case. So for everybody, it's, it's uh, a, a little different. There's a lot of variation. I'm curious to know about one thing in particular, Neil. When you bring your equipment with you and you run into something that is legendary in parapsychological and paranormal research, and that is the notorious cold spots. They're eerie. People report them with or without equipment. And you go to measure the drop in temperature in a particular locale, even within a larger room, there will be a particularly cold spot. What do you think is going on there? I think in most cases it's actually a perception of a temperature change. Some people, I've had investigations where there have been uh, several people uh, in the site and, and only some of them have actually experienced the cold spot even though we're all standing in the same room. That oftentimes happens, at least in my experience. So in a way it's more of a perception that there's uh, a cold area or a cold spot. Um, having said that, I've also had investigations. There was one particular investigation that happened at the, uh, the infamous Walker Ames House in Port Gamble out here on the Olympic Peninsula. And this was a case where we had temperature sensors around the room. We had at least three of them so that we, had, uh, we knew what the background, the ambient temperature was, which was something along the lines of, I don't know, 69 degrees, almost 70 degrees. It was a fairly comfortable day. And we... Two, 
two of the students and myself experienced one of these cold spots that just sort of came on and developed around us in about a five-foot square area. And people standing on the outside of that area didn't feel any temperature change at all. And yet the students and myself, we could actually see our breath as we were breathing in and out. So we knew that doesn't generally happen at 69 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, So something else must be going on there. There was a physical drop for whatever reason. And that just happened to correspond with what a psychic was telling us that the the ghost who seems to reside in that particular location was present and was trying to communicate with us. So, again, it really depends on uh, on the situation. Have you ever been in a situation where you detected the cold spot, you noticed a change in the ambient temperature, so you're doing your, your due diligence, as it were, and then sought to communicate through electronic voice phenomena with this disembodied entity, this spirit, and get a response so that you're in the spot, you are talking, you are receiving, even if you have to check it on a tape recorder afterward, you're receiving a response so that you could identify an incident as paranormal. Yeah, actually, the uh, the incident that I just ta- uh, talked about at the Walker Ames house with the uh, the cold spot there, we did we did get some anomalous uh, audio. On, uh, on digital recorders. It wasn't voices, it was just noises that were in the area that uh, were not being made uh, acoustically at the time that we were actually there. So while I can't you know, point to that and say that there was actually a voice telling us to get out, um, it was very interesting because there really was no explanation for the noises that we were getting on the recording. So sometimes, yes, they do coincide. When you're talking about noises, and if it isn't somebody's voice, I mean, does it sound like there's a party going on? Are you hearing the clinking of glasses, or what is what kind of noise are you hearing? Uh, well, again, with this with this particular location, the Walker Ames House, uh, it's sort of a, a hot spot for audio recording. That's probably the the most likely thing that you're going to experience there. And we've had everything from footsteps up and down the hall. Uh, running in the house to uh, people calling out names, proper names, uh, nobody that we knew. Uh, We've had the sound of furniture being dragged around, um, doors opening and closing, drawers, furniture um, being opened and closed, all those kinds of things. So you do get, you know, there's a difference, or at least I, I make a distinction between EVP, which is electronic voice phenomena, and EAP, uh, electronic audio phenomena, which is basically anything outside of the vocal range. Um, bearing in mind that most of these things actually are not acoustic signals because, generally speaking, we're not hearing them at the time they're being recorded. And if they were recorded uh, and everybody heard them, that would more than likely be an acoustic signal, hence the name electronic voice or electronic audio uh, phenomena. So, you know, once again, we do get all kinds of different things. Uh, in fact, uh, I did have an investigation once where uh, we were walking through. Uh, there were three of us, and we were being very quiet and, and very respectful in an otherwise empty house. There was a door that I had been told previously needed to be closed, so I went to close the door. I pulled on it just a little bit too hard, and it slammed tremendously. You could just hear the echo through the house, this complete un- uh, completely unoccupied house. 
we didn't say anything at the time. We just kind of rolled our eyes and went on with the investigation. And when I played the tape back, I actually heard a woman's voice right after the bang saying, not so loud, very, very <laughs> clearly. So that's just just another reminder that we are going into other people's uh, abodes and we do need to be respectful uh, toward the ghosts as well. When we talk do about... you go to places that are occupied or are you generally going to places that are not occupied uh, in, in this reality? In this reality, that's a good distinction. Um, basically, I do both. Oftentimes, I will be getting a phone call or an email from somebody, I call them a client, who is believes that they're experiencing some kind of activity, some sort of para, para, paranormal phenomenon. It's usually in their home, although I have done several businesses, uh, uh, investigations in several businesses. So usually when I'm going in on those kinds of investigations, the building is already occupied. And as I mentioned before, we want to have the conditions of the investigation be as close to the norm as possible. So we have the witnesses there. And generally, I have them go through their daily routine as if I'm not there. Um, but then there are longer-term investigations, ones that I've done for years. Um, I'm currently part of one that's happening down on the uh, central Oregon coast for the last three years that uh, when we're going to do the investigation, we try to have absolutely no one in the building to cut down on the noise and the disruption and uh, the interaction. We just want to be able to, to have it be as quiet and as still as possible because sometimes these things are very, very subtle and difficult to pick up on. And so we just want to minimize all the white noise, all the distractions that can happen. So more than likely, I'm actually going to be going out to an occupied, um, somebody who's actually living uh, there in the in the house, those are the calls that I generally go out on. I'd like to hear more about this Oregon coast. We have several minutes before we go to our one break of the hour. So tell us about that as much as you can share because it's an ongoing investigation. So without drawing any conclusions, what is it that you're experiencing and what precipitated your going from where you are in Puget Sound down to Oregon to check this out? Actually, what started it was a bachelor party. Um, I have I have several friends up here in the Pacific Northwest paranormal investigation community that I've met over the years, and we sort of know each other individually. Um, but one of one of our little crew here was was getting married, and so the, instead of having a stag party, we decided we were going to have a bachelor party in a haunted hotel. Why not? So the five of us got together. We had a wonderful weekend and uh, did some investigating and poking around and that sort of thing. And at the same time, we, we were sort of lamenting the, the fact that actual paranormal investigation is very rarely portrayed as anything other than frightening or scary, very dramatic. And that's, that's actually not the case for the most part. And what could we do about that? And we thought it would be great if we, if we could, you know, do some kind of a documentary, a long-term investigation somewhere. And we were kicking around ideas of where that might be up here in the Pacific Northwest. And then we realized we're sitting in the middle of it. This hotel, which is known as the Old Wheeler Hotel in Wheeler, Oregon, uh, which is just south of Manzanita, for those of you who know where that is. Uh, it's a beautiful little boutique hotel that uh, has a very, very long history. Uh, it was built back in the 1920s. Really beautiful hotel, very cozy, very homey, and um, has a long history, apparently, of paranormal activities. So we decided that we were going to do two things. We were going to do a long-term investigation, and we were going to document that and actually make a film 
of that. So that's exactly what we're doing. The, the uh, activity there centers around a number of different, uh, I suppose you could say different personalities, different apparitions that are there, different personalities that have been experienced not only by staff over the years, but of course by uh, patrons who are coming to stay, guests at the hotel. Now, the current owner of the hotel calls the ghosts her permanent guests. These are the guests that never actually left, the permanent guests. And so that's the name of the documentary, The Permanence, a Paranormal Case Study. Um, A lot of the activity that happens there uh, is reported by guests who are staying at the hotel. Again, anything from uh, conversations happening in closed and unoccupied guest rooms uh, to things being moved around to... uh, other sounds throughout the building. It's I, I can't go into too much detail on it. You're going to have to wait for the documentary to come out. Um, but it's a it's a wonderful location, and uh, we really we're very fortunate to chance into into doing that for anybody that's uh, that's interested. You can stay there, uh, and they might set you up in a room, and you may have an experience. They don't guarantee it though, but you might uh, get the luck of the draw. I think Gary would like that, wouldn't you, Gary? Oh, I definitely would. In fact, if I ran such a hotel, if I knew of haunted rooms, I would put up a sign, a nice professional sign on each each door, and it would say, do not feed the ghost. <laughs> well, I think I... something like that would be fun. Do you know, Neil, that there in Tampa, not far from where I live, there is a hotel near the complex, the George Steinbrenner complex, where the Yankees conduct spring training. And there is a hotel that when ball players come in to play these games, including some of the Yankee players in years past, there are certain rooms that they refuse to enter. They'll say, don't assign me that room. I'm not sleeping in that room because of all the ghostly activity, poltergeist activity. And so these rooms become identified. And as you well know, this goes on all over North America. I'm sure, you know, I don't know what the percentage would be. Maybe it's, you know, 10, 15% of hotels will have identified some of this stuff. They're not all Manresa Castle, you know. But when you come to hotels where, oh, that's the haunted room or that's where somebody was murdered, if you can get that information out of them, you find out that many hotels have these guests who, according to Hotel California Lyric, you can check out anytime you <laughs> like, but you can never leave. I, th- I suspect that that percentage, that number, is actually probably a little bit higher than, than, than just that because, of course, a lot of businesses don't want to admit the fact that they've had uh, guests die in the hotel. It's not exactly uh, the best marketing campaign that you can, that you can put forth. Yeah. Um, but then again, there are some hotels that actually do embrace their paranormal aspects. I've done uh, investigation and uh, several workshops and, and presentations at the Sorrento Hotel one of the uh, the finest hotels that we have in uh, in Seattle and according to a couple of different surveys probably one of the top 10 most haunted hotels in the US at this point and they actually embrace that they want people to come in and find out information about that and the old Wheeler hotel that that we have been investigating they make no bones about it no pun intended but uh, they also are very very respectful of their permanence and their guests and they don't really allow uh, group investigations, ghost hunters to come in and and, uh, and do investigation there because that's the home for the ghosts as well, and they're trying to be just as respectful as if they were living guests there. Well, that sounds really good. Let's go ahead and take our halftime break. We are talking with Neil McNeil, a paranormal researcher, ghost hunter, if you will, 
We have many more questions to ask him, and we will do so on the other side of this break. Thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to mansonmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. We are talking with Neil McNeil. He's a paranormal researcher, well-regarded anywhere he goes, but a particular favorite in the Pacific Northwest. And Neil, it's time, as I said just before we came back from the break, let's move some products here. We want to promote you. (laughs) Not only do we want to make sure that your website gets out there, we also want to let people know, and I'm looking at a picture of the cover right now. This is exciting. Dark and stormy nights. Parapsychology for Ghost Hunters. Get your DVD now. I love that you put some of your work on DVD so people can pop it in on a dark and stormy night and enjoy the work that you do. Tell us about this DVD, the contents, and how easy it is for people to acquire it. Well, it's got everything you need to know in it. The only thing that's missing is the popcorn, as you said. Um, Basically, I took the idea of the classes I was teaching at the college level. I've taught uh, parapsychology classes in and around the Seattle area for many years and noticed that a lot of people couldn't make it to Seattle that really wanted this information, and so I decided that I would actually produce a DVD. Uh, It's about a 45-minute program that gives you the basics of parapsychology 
the science, the history of it. Uh, we talk about the phenomena, the different types of phenomena. Uh, we talk about ghosts, hauntings, poltergeists, all the good stuff. It's all contained right there. Um, it's also got a pretty nice little bibliography uh, feature that gives you a number of different references to, to uh, go to for more information. And so that's, that's sort of the shorthand version of what I do, basically, as an educator. And that's, that's why I did it. And uh, people uh, so far have been actually quite happy with it. So you can find that on my website, as you mentioned, which is www.paranormalstudies.org. And you can also find uh, a link to that through my Facebook page, again, through Paranormal Studies on Facebook. Paranormalstudies.org. And again, the DVD is Dark and Stormy Nights. Parapsychology for Ghost Hunters. That sounds like a winner to me, Neil. I'm glad that you compiled this. I'm curious to know one thing about the term poltergeist. First of all, it's a cultural reference because poltergeist, German for noisy ghost, comes from a culture in some ways similar, in other ways different from North American culture, American culture specifically. And yet if you go around the world, I don't think there's a society anywhere that does not make reference to spirit activity, to ghosts, to apparitions. And this goes as far back as think of Hamlet and his father's ghost. So in Shakespearean time, but you go way back farther than that, there are spirits, apparitions and appearances and interactions in the Bible. This goes way back all over the world. That's true. Uh, without the word poltergeist, of course, because that hadn't come around yet, but you're absolutely right. The idea that you've got the poltergeist activity centers, um, basically the hallmarks of that are very physical disruptions in your environment. So a lot of banging on walls, slamming of doors, moving of objects, throwing things around, very, very, uh, can be violent, actually, very disruptive, very disturbing types of physical activity. Um, and, of course, as you said, this goes all the way back through recorded history. This is something that has been with us for a very long time. Uh, the word poltergeist, as you mentioned, noisy ghost, um, from the German, and that was a, a pretty apt descriptor of the types of activity that were happening. That became the generalized term for this kind of behavior, this kind of disruption, and I sort of liken it to basically having tracked psychic mud or bubble gum into your house. This is sort of the thing that you pick up somewhere, you have no idea, it just attaches itself to you, and you bring it home and it decides to stay, and it becomes the unpleasant house guest that just refuses to leave and becomes very, very um, disruptive to your, your daily routine. This was the old idea the old idea, concept, of what a poltergeist, what this kind of activity was, that it was basically due to a very mischievous type of spirit or ghost that had free will and wanted to hang out with you and be, make you as miserable as possible. I guess for Harry Potter fans, Peeves, the, uh, the poltergeist, is a really good example of that. Research that we've had from 1960s, 1970s forward, especially due to folks like Tony Cornell, uh, parapsychologist Tony Cornell and uh, William Roll, among others, has shown when, when they're able to get in basically on the ground floor of one of these types of disturbances and investigate it from almost the very beginning, they find that it, it generally is not attributable to a disembodied spirit, that it is not actually the... Uh, the, uh, the whole thing does not revolve around a ghost. 
that it actually revolves around a living person. This is what we call the poltergeist agent or just simply the agent, that there is one person living in the, the work dynamic or the home dynamic who is actually at the center of all of this activity, and it tends to, to follow them around. If they go from work back to home, the activity might follow them from one locale to another. The phenomena itself, the actual um, physical stuff, tends to have a, an almost symbolic or metaphoric nature to it. Um, if this person around whom all the activity is centering, uh, let's say they're, they're repressing a lot of grief, they've got a lot of repressed grief over the death of somebody, um, it's, not, it's not coming out, you start to get water-related phenomena. So all of the disruptive behavior tends to, you know, center around broken pipes or faucets that won't turn off or toilets that won't stop flushing or the fact that it's raining in the bedroom, all these kinds of very weird, uh, very specific types of symbolic phenomenon. And it turns out, um, after much study, that the idea of a poltergeist has been sort of turned a little bit, this whole definition that, again, it is not a ghost that is causing these things. It is actually a living person who is under an enormous amount of stress in their day-to-day life. And unlike, shall we say, normal people, quote-unquote normal people, they're not able to deal with that stress effectively. And it builds up in them almost like you're shaking up a bottle of soda, and eventually it's going to explode. And the way that that comes out is in latent psychic ability. Mind over matter, psychokinesis, the ability to affect your physical environment using the power of your mind. Now, it's important to point out that these agents who are doing this don't realize that they are doing this. This is all subconscious um, uh, on, on the subconscious level for them. They have no idea they are actually the cause of it. But once they come to that realization, the activity stops, usually quite suddenly once they realize that they are the ones who are at the center of it and probably the ones who are causing it. So it's a, it's a much different view, the modern view of poltergeist activity, um, than the traditional view. Very, very big turnaround, but still quite interesting. Neil, earlier you were talking about how most ghosts were benign, but people have a tendency to be very frightened of ghosts because it's something that they wouldn't expect to see or hear in their everyday 3D reality. But in your investigations and and poltergeists aside, have you ever stepped into a situation where you felt a kind of a dark energy or you yourself thought, maybe I don't want to pursue this? Well, I did step into a ghost, actually, once, and that was probably the, the most disturbing thing that, I'd, that I had ever done. In over 25 years of doing field research, I've gone to a lot of different houses, and I've talked with a lot of different people and had a number of different experiences myself. I can honestly say that in none of those cases was I ever frightened or scared or felt like my life was in jeopardy. And that observation actually tracks with the majority of the literature, the parapsychological literature, the the cases that have been studied on a scientific level. Um, As you mentioned, most people have these experiences, and it can be very unnerving because you're not expecting it, and you might interpret that as frightening. Some people might even take it a step further and call that evil. Um, But when we get down to the nuts and bolts of the actual experience itself, it turns out that there wasn't too much that was really very, you know, evil or frightening about it. One case that I I had several years ago, 
up in the Bellingham area, um, there was a gentleman who was really freaked out about the fact that he had an apparition running around his apartment. And I, I, I tried to talk him down off the ledge, as it, as it were. He was very frightened about it. And I said, tell me what the most um, startling thing was. What was the thing that really bothered you the most? And he said, okay, I was in my office. I was filling out the bills, the monthly bills. I was putting the checks in the envelopes, addressing it, and I couldn't find the stamps. And I knew I had just gotten them that week, brand new roll of stamps, put them on the desk. I couldn't find them. He started tearing the desk apart. He couldn't find the stamps. He tore the rest of the office apart. He couldn't find them. He thought maybe I left them somewhere else in the apartment. He went and spent a half an hour searching the apartment, could not find them, comes back to the office, and there are the stamps sitting on top of the stack of letters that he just finished. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I like that. That was, that was frightening to you? You know, I didn't want to detract from his experience, but I said that that was fright that you constitute that as a frightening experience. And he said, well, well, yeah, it really unnerved me. And I said, well, you know, I'm trying to reframe this. I said, is it possible that they were trying to help you because you lost the stamps? And he said, you know, I never thought about it that way. And I said, actually, personally, I would love to have a ghost like that. I need a secretary. I need somebody who can find <laughs> those things for me. Sign me up. And so we were able to reframe that. But um, as far as my own personal startling experiences, yes, I did actually have one of those once. It was up in the Marysville area. It was a, uh, a, a private home investigation where while the rest of the group was interviewing the family members upstairs, I was doing my role by going downstairs and getting sort of a baseline background readings of finding unshielded wiring and leaking uh, uh, microwave ovens and things like that. So I was on my own walking around uh, the lower level of the house and I walked into a bedroom, got about three feet in the door, and literally ran into something solid. I, I literally bounced off of it just like you would have walked into somebody uh, without realizing it. And I don't know how I knew this, but in a split second, I had the image that I had walked into somebody who was probably six six two, much taller than I am, much broader and larger than I am, was a male, and he was very upset that I was in his space because this room was apparently his space. And again, don't ask me how I knew that. It was just a flash. And all I could do basically was just put up my hands and say, my mistake. I'm so sorry to have disturbed you. I walked back out into the hallway and, uh, you know, sort of collected my wits just a little bit and thought, hmm, that was really interesting. That's about that's about it for me. That's about as scary as it's actually ever gotten. Um, so I hate to disappoint people out there who are looking for really frightening Stephen King like uh, uh, stories. But the majority of the of the encounters that I've had are and that and that I've heard from other people actually aren't frightening. They're just misinterpreted events uh, because they're so startling because they happen so suddenly, as you pointed out. Um, so that's really the the reality from my point of view. That's the reality. Thank you. I have a story that I can share, not my personal experience, though I've had some paranormal experiences, which I always wanted to have, and I think I had them independent of my desire for them, actually, uh, several years ago, but I'll leave that to one side, because when it comes to poltergeist activity, I was told a story by a longtime family friend, and he said, that, and this guy, he was, he was kind of crusty, ornery old guy, he was a senior citizen at the time he related the story to me about his teenage years in Iowa. After school one day, he's sitting there, and there was a, a glass of water or some beverage sitting on the kitchen table, and I believe it was his father who had his back turned in the kitchen doing whatever, 
teenager at the time. So here's this, this teenage, you know, this, this pubescent energy involved, perhaps. He was sitting at the table after school, and there was a glass of something sitting there, and it was full of liquid. Without bumping the table or otherwise being the cause of this effect, he watched this glass fly, as he put it. It flew off the table as if thrown off the table, crashed to the floor, broke the glass, liquid to be cleaned up. And his father, of course, thought that he was just being clumsy and had done this, and he swore up and down for the rest of his life that he had nothing to do with this projectile of a glass filled with liquid liquid crashing on the floor there at his boyhood home in Iowa. It's the kind of thing he could not explain, and he wasn't much given to ghost stories. He wasn't a paranormal guy, but he said, you know, I was blamed for this crashing glass and the fill, and I had nothing to do with it. I didn't bump the table. I did nothing. I watched it happen, and I thought, man, wouldn't that be something to see? Well, there there are places where you can learn how to do that sort of thing, actually, <laughs> believe it or not. I teach a workshop on uh, psychokinesis. If you want to learn how to move small objects and do things like that, that's actually... Uh, not that difficult, believe it or not. Uh, not that you want to start breaking crockery and, and, and having temper tantrums psychically um, by throwing glasses around the room and things like that. But uh, this is, of course, a lot of the activity that we had from uh, mediums back in the, in the Victorian era when they were doing what was called physical mediumship, being able to levitate a table, being able to levitate objects in a room or levitate themselves. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people have these kinds of experiences, and they chalk them up to, I, I was dreaming, it was my imagination that was so bizarre that I can't possibly accept that it was real, um, and they keep it to themselves. So I think a lot of people have little stories like that, little encounters with the paranormal, with psychic phenomena that way that uh, that don't necessarily get told all that often. So very interesting story, very interesting story. They may also just have encounters that that they don't, or don't believe because it just doesn't fit their perception of what the world is like. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you can't, there can be ghosts that are, you know, walking down the street or in the grocery store or almost any place that we go, but we wouldn't pay a lot of attention to it. Which sounds, it, yeah, yeah, on the surface that sounds kind of silly, but really when you, when you look at the parapsychology, uh, uh, the parapsychological studies of this, the, the literature sort of bears this out, most apparitional experiences are not with filmy, misty, uh, you know, some, looks like something from, from Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. They're actually perceived as physical people that cast reflections in mirrors or reflective surfaces that have shadows um, that uh, are able to maneuver around objects in the room, furniture and things like that. They're mistaken for real people most of the time. Um, and you really only know that you've had that experience on, on, at the point where they, the ghost disappears right in front of your eyes or walks through a wall or a door or something along those lines. So I think you're right in, in the, uh, the speculation and the assumption that we probably have all met a ghost at some point in our life. We just didn't know that that's what we were experiencing at the time. Yes, and I think I had one of those experiences myself. I was going to the post office in Kenmore one time, and there was a, a young man that crossed my path, and uh, he kept walking, 
And then all of a sudden, I looked to the right. He would have been going down some stairs and out toward the street, and he just wasn't there. Mm. And I thought, now, where could he have gone? All these buildings are connected. There wasn't any other doors. I, 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 he crossed my path and completely disappeared on me. Very interesting. And, and so I, he looked like a real person. I, yeah. I waited for him to go before I moved and, and then uh, decided to just take another look to my right. And there was no person there to my right. And, and so I, I have had that experience where it seems to be a real person. And then I was just kind of left scratching my head. Well, I didn't think ghost. I wasn't scared. It was just, well, isn't that odd? Where did that boy go? And in point of fact, it doesn't even have to be a person that you're encountering, like an actual apparition. It could be uh, an object, uh, you know, a, a, a horse and carriage. It could be a car. It could be uh, a, an animal, a pet, something like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be a person. So that sort of even increases your odds of having experienced something that you that was actually paranormal, but you just didn't realize it at the time. If you're talking about the Kenmore Post Office, maybe he disappeared in one of the parking lot potholes. <laughs> That's entirely possible. I'm telling you, man, I, I believe in the Twilight Zone every time I went to mail a letter over there. Now, this was years ago, so maybe they fixed those. The city fathers of Kenmore, whoever owns that property, bless you if you fix those. But, I mean, that was some cratering in that parking lot. That guy might still be there to this day. We don't know. <laughs>
not immediately hearing the answer, but nevertheless, he asked the question, did you do that to the computer? It came out of sleep mode. Did you do that? And on playback, he heard a voice say, nothing to it. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what if someone was aware at, that, at the speed of thought, you know, on that wavelength, that I was remembering this person who was special to me. There was a bond there, and I called it to mind in a fairly intense way, really. And then here the computer comes on. That was the first time I ever experienced anything that I could call paranormal. I think that's a lovely personal story, and and it can be interpreted a couple of different ways, but as I always try to work with my clients, I always tell them, this is your ghost story. This is your particular you're what we call a subjective paranormal experience, and I'm not willing to take that away from anybody by trying to analyze it and being the scientist that I am. I also want you to, to have that experience and be able to keep it for yourself. So I think that's a wonderful way of, of looking at that particular event. Neil, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I know Gary was so intrigued by your DVD. I don't want to end this hour without your giving out your... Uh, website once again, and also talking about the DVD and where, you know, how people can get that. Well, the website is paranormalstudies.org. There's a bunch of information about myself and classes and things like that there, and you can also purchase the DVD there, which is Dark and Stormy Nights, Parapsychology for Ghost Hunters. Uh, The genesis of that idea was that there are a number of ghost hunting groups, amateur ghost hunting groups out there that are very earnest and, and excited to go out and investigate the paranormal, but they learn from what they see on television, which isn't exactly the most accurate representation. So by offering some solid scientific information about parapsychology and what it studies, hopefully um, everybody wins. So, yeah, you can find it there, paranormalstudies.org. Again, you can also find me on uh, Facebook at Paranormal Studies on Facebook. And uh, the other project I'm working with right now is, of course, The Permanence, a Paranormal Case Study. You can find us at thepermanencefilm.com or also on Facebook, The Permanence Film, there. Excellent. Really appreciate that. And I will just, uh, let me just piggyback on something. And no, I won't get on my soapbox. I'll simply remind our listeners that what you see on cable TV is not necessarily legitimate research. What Neil McNeil does is scientifically demonstrable. You can argue about the results. You can interpret as you will. But you have to understand that when TV shows have a production schedule and they have an hour to present something, you're going to find a ghost no matter what. Let's put it that way. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Gary. Neil, thank you so much for being with us today. We will have you back. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right.